Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The metaphor object lesson is a familiar one, still in everyday use. But what exactly does that metaphor refer to? In her book, Object Lessons, How 19th Century Americans Learned to Make Sense of the Material World, my guest Sarah Ann Carter reveals that object lessons were a classroom exercise in wide use during the 19th century. Her book is a study of intellectual history, but also of intellectual culture, a fascinating story of how what happened in the classroom came to shape the language of politics and advertising. Sarah Ann Carter is curator and director of research at the Chipstone Foundation in Milwaukee. She also teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has published, lectured, and taught courses on material culture, museum practice, and American cultural history. Sarah, thank you for being on Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So we were talking a little bit before we began about Chipstone, the Chipstone Foundation. What is the Chipstone Foundation, other than kind of a very cool name? Uh, Well, the name actually is quite a funny story, which I can tell you, but the Chipstone Foundation is a private foundation based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that focuses on collecting early American decorative art, Uh, so American furniture, American and British ceramics, and American prints. 
but we're also quite interested in innovative museum practice. And for the past 20 years, we've created exhibitions at the Montgomery Museum and have collaborated with museums all over the country. We run a think tank program where we work with institutions that are trying to better meet their mission and looking for ways to be creative and innovative. And uh, we also teach undergraduate students about decorative arts and material culture. So the the subject that we're tackling here of object lessons is very interesting because it's it is as I said it's um, educational history, it's intellectual history, it's intellectual culture, but it's very close to how you spend your day-to-day existence as a curator of objects and bringing them to people's attention. Um, is that right? There's a, yes. You're really touching a vein that's close to your heart here. It absolutely is. And in this, this book project, in my book, I'm thinking a lot about how people understood how you can move from objects to ideas, mm-hmm. how you could go from the study of a material thing to understanding the larger world around that thing, what that thing might imply, um, how that thing could help us understand and unlock aspects of social and cultural history. Mm-hmm. And the work that I do at Shipto, we do a great deal of object teaching. A lot of the work that we do is very much focused on um, starting with a material thing and then helping students think about innovative and creative ways those objects could help us tell stories about the past and the present and their relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. So we begin the book with a really curious revelation, perhaps for some. I kind of was vaguely aware of this, but I hadn't realized how important the Swiss connection was to 19th century American educational theorists. So it all begins with that very curious and eccentric Swiss educator Pestalozzi. Um looking out the window at a ladder. So let's explain about windows and ladders here and who he was and how he starts this up. Yes, so um, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi was basically your classic romantic hero. (laughs) He had all sorts of big ideas, but his personal life and personally, he seemed to pretty much be a big mess. Um, And he was really fascinated in the ways that children learned. And he really wanted to find ways to help children and um, the teachers who came to work with him learn more about how to truly understand and make sense of the world. And some of his earlier writings, he really focused on mothers and motherhood. And he noticed that mothers seemed to truly understand their children better than anyone else and understood childhood better than anyone else because they were constantly observing their children. They were looking closely. They were trying to make sense of the, trying to make sense of their um, children and the patterns. Uh, uh, Al, I'm getting all tongue-tied. That's all right. <laughs> They're trying to make sense of their uh, children, yeah, and patterns. Well, and patterns. Um, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi was pretty much your classic romantic hero. In descriptions of him, he looks like a madman. His socks are falling down because he's not, um, you know, he hasn't, you know, fixed them properly up his calves. He's often missing his shoe buckles, which he'll describe as having given away to some poor family. His hair is disheveled. I mean, there are crazy stories of him um, just running through the streets, almost looking like a madman. But he was also a brilliant educator. And he had these big ideas that you learn the most from children by looking closely at them and observing them and understanding how they observe the world. 
And so there are these quite famous and possibly apocryphal stories of Pestalozzi developing this whole system of learning by realizing that rather than teaching children with pictures of things, with Anshang um, Unterricht, which were these sense perception cards mm-hmm. that were quite popular in the late 18th and early 19th century, instead of using pictures of things, children could best learn with the things themselves. And the things themselves would inspire much more thoughtful observation, they would inspire connections, they would activate the children's minds in new ways. And in the process, change their, uh, train their senses. And so, quite famously, there's a story in which Pastor Liz is in a classroom with students and they are looking at pictures of the ladder and then one of the students points out the window and there is the ladder itself out the window in the courtyard. And he realizes we should turn to things, not just their mere representation. Mm-hmm. So that becomes the foundation of a whole set of classroom, ed- classroom exercises that he and his many student teachers developed over the course of many years in a series of schools throughout Europe. So Pestalozzi is himself a sort of stop on the grand tour for certain interested um, for interested Europeans and for English persons and I guess the occasional American. Um, what do they learn from him? Well, Pestalozzi, he creates a, a culture and a system in which educational innovation is really encouraged. Mm-hmm. And he was not a very good administrator. You know, as most romantic heroes, not very good administrators, <laughs> but really good at coming up with ideas and possibilities. And so many of the teachers who came through um, his various schools, particularly people like Charles Mayo, who would go on with his sister to develop um, a whole school around object lessons, um, he created opportunities for a range of younger teachers, teachers in training, visitors, to experience a totally new way of teaching. And this was often rooted in observation. This teaching was rooted in close looking, and it was not rooted in memorization and in text. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite a different way to teach children. And it became became the foundation for a whole range of 19th century pedagogies that really transformed the way people thought about learning and how children could learn and experience the world. And Charles Mayo is probably one of his most famous students because he would then return to England and working with his sister, Elizabeth Mayo, develop a school system that developed a home and colonial schools, which would train teachers in object lesson methods who would then be sent throughout um, the British Empire at that time to teach to teach children all over the world the value of looking closely at things rather than looking at pictures. So there, there's a direct influence from Pestalozzi or his works or writings about him to very influential Americans. Uh, Bronson Alcott, who is perhaps not the best example of a successful schoolmaster, um, but right. another more, romantic hero. Another romantic hero, but much more importantly, Dorothea Dix. And then uh, Horace mm-hmm. Mann. Did did Mann? I'm not sure. He certainly he read Pestalozzi. Did he visit the? Uh, he visited Switzerland to get ideas at some point. Did he not? Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not sure. He's not really thought. I'm not sure if he studied directly with Pestalozzi in one of his schools. Uh huh. 
And then there are these Swiss. There's uh, Kruzzi, who is one of Pestalozzi's. Mm -hmm. He comes to the United States. Um, and then there's Louis Ag Agassiz. I always pretty much pronounce his name. Agassiz. Yeah, Agassiz, right. Who mm -hmm. teaches natural history at Harvard for ages and ages. And, um, mm -hmm. um, so what do the, these people bring with them? There's that famous uh, story. I looked this up as I was reading your book. You don't mention it, but it's the story of Agassiz and the fish. Um, yeah, Agassiz and the fish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. by, and and that, that story seems to convey something of an attention to real things. Uh, I can post the, it's it appeared I, by a very famous entomologist who uh, Agassiz uh, taught mm -hmm. at Harvard. And yeah, and actually I've made, I've made a video about that. Um, <laughs> okay. You, tell, you yeah, tell the story yeah. then. I mean, because I think that gets to the attention, uh, this sort of Pestalozzi influence on attending to real objects. Mm -hmm. he, um, yeah, so um, a man by the name of Scudder was one of Agassiz's students at Harvard. And Scudder was, you know, a young student of Agassiz, and he turns up, and rather than being able to study all sorts of, you know, exciting animals and things that he had wanted to do, Agassiz basically gave him a fish. Yeah. And for weeks and weeks, he told Scudder, you know, you just have to look at this fish. You just have to try to understand this object, and gave him no further instructions. And he would first, and, he had to learn sort of basically laboratory technique, keeping this fish, preserved fish moist with alcohol as he right. studied it and dissected it. That was sort of the first lesson. And then it and goes we on. had to learn how to maintain the specimen. Yeah. But even more importantly, what he realized was that just a cursory look at the specimen was not going to reveal what he needed to truly understand it. Mm -hmm. And that gradually you know, smelling like these chemicals or preserving this fish, going home frustrated day after day, he gradually came to realize that there was a pattern here. There was something that he needed to notice in looking at this fish. And one of his first observations is that, you know, this fish is um, it's symmetrical, yeah. right? There's, it's, we could, this is one observation, one pattern that might not be initially apparent in looking at, an ob looking at a specimen. Right. But yet, that's a crucial observation when you're thinking about histories of zoology, to begin to understand that as something that is a way to understand organisms. So that kind of observation, that kind of close looking, is very much in keeping with many of the things that Pestalozzi was teaching and talking about. When Agassiz, when he would run um, teachers' institutes in the early 19th century in New England, he would you know, bring insects and give every member of the Institute a grasshopper, for example, where those teachers in training could look closely and observe and try to really understand what it was they were looking at, not through his description, not through an image of those insects, which of course all images are kind of arguments and are kind of analysis, yes. but through the thing itself, forcing those teachers to really make sense of what they were looking at. So that through it, we can get really philosophical or even neurobiological here, but they're having to engage in almost a relationship with the object itself. Um, yes. Rather than that representation or interpretation of an object. Right, exactly. And there was an understanding that it was in through, in through engaging with the thing itself, you were not just learning about that object, but you were learning patterns of thinking and observation. So could you give um, an example of how would an object lesson work then? A very simple one. 
um, because that's one of the difficulties with, I think, in an understanding sort of of the book is to figure out how this actually worked in the classroom because it happens in different ways in different classrooms. So what's a sort of simple object lesson? If I was given, I don't know, um, some examples in the book of sugar or of of a cruet of vinegar, how would a, how would a Mm -hmm. teacher, how would you lead uh, students through that? Well, the examples that you bring up like on sugar or vinegar in those cases, um, it would depend on the age of the student and very much in the context when he's leading that lesson. But I could imagine um, in a classic five-part object lesson, like the kind of lesson that the Mayos really advocated at the home and colonial schools, you would start with the basic observation of that object. Let's say it is sugar. You might look closely at it. You might figure out, you know, what, what color is it? What are some of the basic qualities of this object, right? You'd begin to look closely and try to discern um, you know, is it white? Is it sparkling? Like, what are some of the basic qualities of this object? What are qualities that perhaps could be developed through engaging with it? Is it sweet? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is it that makes this what people say it is? So initially, from the very beginning, and going through this process of engaging with a substance or a thing, the student and the teachers leading them through this exercise are asking the students and they're asking themselves to challenge the notion that you can just memorize that the substance is called sugar. You are really being asked to understand, you know, what is this thing in front of me? What is this substance in front of me that I'm engaging with? Right? Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to understand what are the qualities of this substance? What makes this um, what, what I think it is? How do I define this material? And then from there, Moving out from there to understand maybe what are qualities that I cannot discern through my senses. What's additional information that a teacher might want to give a student about this substance? So, for example, where is it coming from? Is it foreign or domestic? Is it in something that's imported? Is it something that has medicinal qualities? Is it something that um, has other sorts of functions or contacts? that I couldn't get just from looking at it or just from tasting it or just from engaging with it, right? Mm-hmm. Then students would be led to really think through how might I sort or organize this thing? Um, is it a vegetable? <laughs> is it a mineral? Is it an animal? Is it a spice? Is it um, edible? Is it what? You know, how do I define this thing? What are the categories in which I would put this thing to help me make sense of it? Mm-hmm. And then finally, students would be asked to write about it, to actually write a composition in which they put together all of that information. So then, in essence, go ahead. Are they building it on previous information, like they know what sugar cane is, for example, when they're trying to answer the question about vegetable? In some cases. Uh-huh. In some cases, they are, depending on the age of the students. Mm-hmm. In some cases, a teacher might tell them that. That could be information that they are given. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are certainly many instances in which um, students are just given the substance itself and then the other information is brought to bear on it in class discussion. Mm-hmm. There are other cases in which um, sugar might be placed within a network of other materials or images mm-hmm. to help fill in some of that context. But... The, the goal is to develop a pattern of thinking that started with close looking and observation, um, you know, a whole range of empirical observation, whether it is looking closely 
or it could be, um, you know, tasting or touching or smelling or listening, you know, if it has a metallic quality to it, to listen to what that object sounds like. To go from those kinds as physical details, those sensory details, the training of one's sense perception, mm-hmm. to understanding the broader context in which that thing was created or how it exists in the world or where it comes from, figuring out what p- categories or patterns it might be part of, mm-hmm. and then synthesizing that information to actually write about that object. So in a lot of ways, the practice becomes um a way to teach patterns of thinking, and it also could be considered almost a prehistory to contemporary material culture scholarship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It becomes a way to think about how do we understand the history of getting ideas from things. Yeah. I, I was very struck uh, as you uh, discussed this. Uh, it's not just a vinegar. It's not just sugar. It's not just ladders. Um, it's also uh, history that object lessons could teach history. You describe um, Sheldon Barnes. Mm-hmm. who came up with a series of books, uh, studies in general history, studies in Greek and Roman history, studies in American history. And she included, quote, personal narratives, letters, laws, and maps, as well as an image of artifacts, such as wooden soled shoes worn by a Confederate soldier and representations of places, such as a sketch of a mining camp in Denver. That sounds like such yeah. a modern textbook. Oh, absolutely. And Mary Sheldon, Mary Sheldon Barnes is a fascinating character. So her father is a man named E.A. Sheldon, who was responsible for popularizing object lessons in the United States. Mm-hmm. So he gets exposed to a whole range of object lesson pedagogies in upstate New York and Oswego, New York, um, just across Lake Ontario from Toronto. And he goes to Ryerson and gets exposed to all of these different kinds of object-based study methods, all of these different object lesson materials, which were created by the Holman Colonial School oh, okay. in so, London. And Canada, of course, is part of the colonial side of exactly. Holman Colonial Schools. Yeah, got it. Exactly. And so those materials are very much in use there, and they're the cutting-edge materials in the late 1850s, early 1860s. And he brings those materials back to Oswego, where he transforms the school system there, um, and later the Oswego State Normal School, which goes on to become SUNY Oswego, um, really becomes a center of object lesson instruction in the United States. And what, what decade daughter, is this? This is the 18- 1860s. Yeah, it's really, uh, as I said in the notes to you, uh, it's really always astounding to me how Western New York seems to have been the center for every possible kind of reform movement in the middle of the 19th yeah, century. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it must have been a fascinating place. And it kind it of, must have been. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think, too, about, you know, these, these hubs of innovation. You yeah, exactly. As you think yeah. about, oh, if you're going to be, like, in Cambridge um, or, you know, San Francisco, there's all sorts of innovation happening in all these different areas. You have to wonder if there's somehow an openness there to all no, these different... Yeah, different but no one ever mentions, uh, you know, Rochester, the sort of triangle, right. Rochester, Syracuse, and Oswego. Here you've got, you know, right. everything, everything from Mormonism to object lessons comes out of this exactly. very small space. Exactly. So you just wonder if there's somehow an openness, yeah. an, open, yeah. an openness there to innovation. It's pretty exciting. Anyway, yeah. so Sheldon creates this whole school there, which is focused not on memorization, not on rote learning, um, but on uh, really on trying to understand how children think and learn through their engagement with objects. And so his daughter, Mary Sheldon Barnes, um, who, you know, goes on to graduate school, becomes a historian, it makes, it makes a great deal of sense that she would be completely fascinated 
by what we would think of today as this primary source-based curriculum. Mm-hmm. Right? She wants her students to turn to the actual stuff of history, the material sources that um, really help us understand larger historical narratives and really become these like touchstones, um, touchstones that help students really try to understand these larger patterns. And of course, the same moment she's writing all these textbooks, there are a whole range of historians focused on material culture, publishing books like um, Alice Morse Early and others thinking about um, putting material sources in their texts about early America as a way of um, further documenting histories of everyday life. So there's this late 19th century interest in collecting and in documenting those objects and mm-hmm. sources. And Mary Sheldon Barnes has really transformed that into a way to teach the practice of doing history. One of the... to. One of the things that she's trying to do is create citizens by studying these by studying documents, and I, this exactly. and you point this harks back to her father and others that uh, studying objects to them was central to developing reason and morals uh, both simultaneously. So um, yeah. we've kind of touched on this before, but let's make it more explicit. How did studying objects first of all develop one's reason? Well, when you're studying a material thing, and this I think of this today with my own students when I'm teaching oftentimes with objects in the classroom, you are presented with something in front of you and not a text that can be repeated back. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, you have to look closely, you have to um, make your own observations, and you have to be able to make connections between what you see in front of you and ideas or questions you may have. Um, You also have to be able to defend your ideas and your thoughts in relation to something that sits in front of you on the table, mm-hmm. not a book that can be closed and put away, not a text that you can memorize and pair it back, mm-hmm. but you're actually being forced to engage with um, the realities of something in front of you. And through that process, you're learning to synthesize those observations with things you might already know, things you might wonder about, questions you may have, and develop those ideas and thoughts out of that observation out of that experience with a material thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a way of training, reasoning, and thinking. Um, And also of empowering students to understand that they can look closely at something and they can develop observations, they can ask questions, they can develop an argument or a narrative coming out of that thing that, of course, can be challenged and talked through, but it gives one a starting point and it gives one a way to think about and engage with the world. That's um, a very, po- very powerful idea. Um, how did yeah. it? How did they see it as developing one's morality? Well, uh, it was often talked about as you know, once you actually face the world and are able to look closely at something, mm-hmm. you are going to be able to make better judgment. Mm-hmm. You are not going to assume that what someone tells you is true. And so, there are several texts, particularly during the 1860s, that argued that. If only Americans had learned to reason and learned how to look closely and to develop their own understanding of the world through close looking and observation, you know, perhaps there wouldn't be the crisis of slavery that America was, hmm. you know, trying, uh, was grappling with, you know, throughout the 1860s. Um, there wouldn't be, uh, and, and obviously for decades and decades prior to that, um, there wouldn't be a question about, um, the, you know, in, integrity of a uh, shopkeeper, someone trying to trick you, 
you would know. You would be a better consumer. You would be a better citizen. You would be able to make better decisions because you had been looking closely. You've been trying to understand the world around you. You were trained to actually um, make your decisions based on the things that you were presented with. And you weren't just parroting back what someone else was telling you. You weren't vulnerable to King Sham. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. were in fact your own person because this, you had learned how to experience the world. So this is what this is what in fact Sheldon Barnes says in, in the preface to today's American uh, in American history that you uh, quote. Uh, what is more to our purpose is only by dealing with the sources of past history that our pupils can be rightly trained to deal with historic sources of his own time and to form independent and unprejudiced judgments concerning the mass of opinions, actions, institutions, and social products of all sorts in which he finds himself involved. In other words, whatever else our young people will become, citizens they must be, and the citizen must constantly form judgments of the historical sort. Yes. That, that sounds like, I mean, uh, that with uh, some editing, that could be Sam Weinberg. Uh, I've just been reading uh, reading a lot of Sam Weinberg um, lately and talking to him soon, recording a conversation with him soon. And that does sound mm -hmm. an awful lot like Sam. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And I find these, these the arguments that she's making and that other object teachers from this period making feel very relevant. They do. They really because do. Because there's this, there's this concern then, as there is now, that people, the students, are not actually learning how to engage with the sources that we're being presented with every day. Or with people. How to engage critically with those sources. Pardon? Or with people. Or with, or with people, exactly. Or with, or with real things are the anxiety of even those who are just slightly older uh, than our students, uh, but who are not as, have not been brought up in the virtual world to the extent that they, our anxieties about the virtual world are, are in many ways expressed by, um, the people who developed object lessons and, and spread them. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how did object lessons spread? Well, it's interesting. As a pedagogy, there was this notion that one could not necessarily just read about it in a book initially, <laughs> but had to experience it. And so throughout um, the early days of the practice in, in England and then throughout the British Empire, so, um, you know, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, you know, it spread through teachers trained in the home and colonial schools. And then starting in the 1860s in the U.S., it spread through teachers trained in the Oswego method. And it really becomes one of the first educational fads. So very early on in the 1860s, as soon as teachers start getting trained in this method, they're being sent out through, through um, common schools throughout the U.S. where um, they are teaching classes and object lessons, where object lessons start to appear um, actually as part of the curriculum as a separate class in schools throughout the U.S. at that point. And it's really through these trained teachers who are leading lessons in object-based study that, um, that it begins to spread and becomes very much um, a common way to talk about material things. And there also are a number of educational publishing houses that are publishing books about object lessons and also publishing object lesson teaching aids, yeah. which are not necessarily strictly object lessons in the way they might have been defined by Pestalozzi um, and the Mayos, but they become really important ways to spread this pedagogy as well. They have you have some beautiful pictures in the in the book of these. Uh, well, I mean, they're art in themselves, really. This mahogany box mm -hmm. of materials. Um, with probably you say for use in Elizabeth Mayo's lessons on objects, um, mm -hmm. with 
four trays uh, divided with all tiny specimens of various things, coral, granite, I see lace, and so on, mm-hmm. all which can be brought out and, and passed around and touched and chains of reasoning built from them. Right. Right, exactly. And, and these things themselves become um, not just stand-ins for words, but actually a way to try to develop and understand the concepts. And one talks about um, cotton. Wow, there's a whole world one might mean when one says cotton. There's raw cotton. There are all different kinds of textiles created from cotton. There's the plant itself. There's, you know, all different other, there's a whole range of materials that could be developed. Mm-hmm. from that one um that one substance yeah you have and these a, kinds of boxes allow you to see that mm-hmm. you have a moving i think an anecdote of uh of basically the children who had recently been enslaved having to think through cotton yes yeah um in object lessons become quite popular actually at the um hampton normal school mm-hmm. at um, what would become the hampton institute now hampton university in virginia and object lessons were used extensively there for students of all ages in different ways. But there's one object lesson um, in particular where students were, um, you know, taught to engage with raw cotton. And actually, there's a photograph of them, you know, rubbing this cotton through their fingers, thinking about how this ball of cotton could become a thread. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, is a very interesting relationship to put those students um, in to, to a substance like cotton where, you know, their families. And this is a little bit later, so their families had, um, many of their families had likely been enslaved mm-hmm. and had been, you know, working with cotton. Many of their, fam- their families could have been sharecroppers. Um, and then at the same time, lessons for students in the North about cotton really would put students much more in a relationship to cotton as a consumer substance, mm-hmm. not as something that they might be picking or producing or getting from the field, but different kinds of cotton they might purchase in a store, different kinds of printed cotton, different kinds of textiles that they can engage with as consumers, not as producers. So object lessons were designed initially to really open up students' minds. They got students to look closely to learn how to reason, but of course, like any pedagogy, they're not neutral. It's not a neutral pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And the ways those lessons are framed, whether for African-American students at Hampton or students in upstate New York who were primarily white students in a place like Oswego, those lessons might be very different, mm-hmm. even so, though they might be with the same substance. Yeah. And that's part of the history of object lessons that is, um, is complicated and important to engage with. And it's also quite relevant for those of us who teach with objects today in our classroom. Because objects can raise a whole range of powerful associations yeah. that are quite connected to race and class, yeah, national origin, identity, all different kinds of categories that we have to be attentive to. Well, certainly what's the powerful about an object is that one object can have so many different, um, they can have, if there are 15 people in the room, all 15 people could have 15 different types of relationship to it. Right, right, which is part of why it's so interesting that an object lesson pedagogy and in many other t- 20th and 21st century material culture pedagogies, um, students are encouraged to engage with objects through a regimented set of practices, mm-hmm. right? So if we were to put an object in front of you and me and to just have a say, write about that object, say you write a composition about this coffee cup, we might get very different things. 
But if we were to preface that experience with the steps of an object lesson, Mm -hmm. where we would be attentive to the materials of that cup, its colors, its design, what it looks like, how it feels, what it does, understanding, you know, cultural categories in which we could put that object, understanding things that perhaps we can't get just through close looking. Our final essays about that cup would certainly be different, but they would be rooted in material understandings of that object. I see. see. And so, yeah, these kinds of processes, um, you know, or today in the 20th and 21st centuries, um, thinking about something like, you know, uh, Jules Crown's um, quite famous essay, Mind and Matter, which, you know, came out in the early 80s, but it's still very much used to teach object lessons today, or um, excuse me, very much used to teach material culture today, is very similar to historic object lesson methods. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the Hampton Institute. You have a, a chapter where you deal with the questions of, of object lessons and race and citizenship. Um, yeah. Were... And and you've suggested to me before, as we were before we started recording, that object lessons, to some extent, became stigmatized because they were regarded as things done in African American schools. Is is I don't know if that's a fair uh, repetition of your thought, but how were object lessons used in places like Hampton Institute? Were they used differently than in in white schools? Well, at places like Hampton, object lessons were used for slightly older children. Mm-hmm. Because Hampton um, is both a school for African-Americans and for Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And so um, object lessons were used for both of those groups quite extensively in the 1870s and 80s. And part of that use um, was based in some uh, really quite racist ideas about how African-American and Native American students would best learn how to engage with the world. And the idea was that object lessons could help make abstract ideas more concrete. Mm-hmm. And they could also help um, train those students' senses in ways that they could really grasp onto and understand these material things and then the larger worlds that they suggested. And that, so that their modes of reasoning were somehow racially inferior and therefore they needed a leg yeah. up. Okay. And therefore they needed this particular kind of pedagogy, which when it was conceptualized was not conceptualized as something that would be used to um fill any sort of perceived um, racial difference, but the idea was that they were for everybody, Mm -hmm. that everyone could benefit from this. But they started to be, the pedagogy started to be um, twisted in a lot of ways to be used for older African-American and Native American students. And some African-American parents at Hampton um, were not happy about this. You know, there's a newspaper account of parents writing and saying they wanted their children to learn to read. Not yeah, to I, I, I was, I, I, I know, I was struck by that. We've had a previous yeah. co- conversation about reconstruction and about the passion for learning all students doing lots of homework and learning how to read within months right. after the end of the Civil War. Um, right, that that was a crucial skill that yeah. you needed to acquire in school. That's why you were going to school. And object lessons sort of delayed that. And yeah. there wasn't as much of a focus on literacy because there was this, you know, expansive mind-opening focus on 
observation and, um, you know, close looking. But if you are a recently enslaved parent who's just gained your freedom, you want your child to develop this crucial skill they had been denied under yeah. slavery. You don't want a bunch you want of, them to uh, learn to read. You don't want a bunch of Montessori hippies coming down from the north to, oh. Right, me. and you certainly don't want your child in school to be, you know, playing with a ball of cotton. Exactly, right? no. That should, that's a, they should be there learning to read. Yeah. And, a, and I think object teachers had very good intentions, um, not all, but for the most part, I think there was this idea that, oh, we're going to teach these children how to learn. But there was also a very, that was happening in a very racist and racialized way mm-hmm. in those schools. And I think it's quite important to remember that and to think about that. So when I teach with objects, when I do object teaching today in the 21st century, I feel very, um, I feel very responsible that I need to be attentive to that racist history in my work and to think about how I can try to acknowledge that history and then try to still use object-based learning and object teaching in a positive way. Um, Because another interesting aspect of object lesson pedagogy at places like Hampton was that it was also explicitly used to teach children how to be servants. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's really quite, there's this mind-opening history in object lessons and object-based pedagogy, but there's a much darker history too that has to be um, that really has to be um, brought into the story as well. I mean, there was a whole movement called the Kitchen Garden Movement, which was a play on kindergarten. Yeah. And the idea was that object-based lessons, object lessons like pedagogy, which would actually become the foundation for the kindergarten movement in the 19th, 19th century Europe and later the United States, those same kinds of lessons could be used to teach children what it felt like to be servants. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is truly like, what, what were the bodily or the somatic qualities of a servant that you could teach a child to develop, whether it's listening for the door or properly salting someone's soup or being able to not show their emotions. Those hmm. were things that a servant needed to learn how to do that could be taught through sensory training. And so, object lesson methods were also applied to those ends as well. Hmm. Um, it's interesting that, um, that, that it, but I, I think we would have to, we need to think about that a little bit more. Um, they're trying to teach something about being a servant and we have to contrast that with um, the children's parents' previous experience of slavery in mm-hmm. which the instru- in which the instruction was very different I, there's an, there's something interesting there, but I have to, would have to take some time for me to tease out. Um, there's something, there's going to be some sort of sense of dignity, racialized undoubtedly, but some sort of di- difference in dignity between the two. Um, but anyway, oh, it, it's certainly, yeah, no. it's, it's certainly not the vision of the W.B. Du Bois had for, um, for, for the, for the, the African-American future, but. No, of, of course there's no doubt about that. I just think it's, it's important to acknowledge that, um, with object lesson methods, with all of those mind-opening possibilities of this pedagogy, is teaching critical thinking yeah. and teaching reasoning skills and teaching close looking, all of those same skills which have very positive ends and outcomes were also used in places like Hampton, but also um, in the Northeast, particularly to teach um, Irish immigrants, yeah. our Irish girls, um, how, to, how to change your body in such a way that you could be a better servant. Um, <laughs> And so 
Uh, I'm just, I was thinking of, what happened when they got yeah. the Italians. Uh, but anyway, go on. Sorry. Sorry that's just part of, um, part of this pedagogy. Yeah, part of the history of this pedagogy. Yeah. Um, the, it's interesting. Yeah. We could do a whole, uh, you could write a whole book on educational uh, fads is cruel, but educational techniques and how they, the declension in the second or third generation from, from the original, right. from original intent. I mean, because it seems to happen all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And anyway. Uh, Object lessons now uh, is a metaphor we use without having any idea of the educational background. And you devote uh, some time to understanding how that happened and how object lessons became part of advertising and politics. Could you uh, explain mm -hmm. that to me a little bit? Sure. And um, so, as you say, we all might know the metaphor of object lesson without actually knowing its history. And what was so fascinating to me was they came to realize that this common metaphor actually hid quite a common classroom practice in the late 19th century. Um, and one of the things that I traced throughout my research was where and how um, the metaphor of the object lesson appeared um, in a whole range of different kinds of texts and places. And what, what became so fascinating to me was to realize that object lessons were used as both a classroom practice and as a metaphor at the same time, particularly in places like Hampton in relation to African-American and Native American students learning there. Booker G. Washington and others explicitly referred to those students as learning by object lessons mm -hmm. and themselves living object lessons and what could be made of an African-American or a Native American student through education. Mm -hmm. And so there are moments like that where the pedagogy um, is being the phrase object lesson is being used both to describe pedagogy and as a metaphor, mm -hmm. and that's when you start to see sort of this slippage between um, these two different ways of using that language. And because object lessons were so incredibly popular in the mid 19th century, a popularity again that the metaphor itself hides, mm -hmm. um, because we you know we think of it as a metaphor, not as actually a practice. I mean, it was in schools throughout the United States. Um, you know, I spent a great deal of time going through um, the curricula of um, of many, many school districts, and it's, it's everywhere in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. And so people were familiar with this term. And so when it starts to slip into the metaphor, um, you know, in the context of Hampton or the Car Carlisle Indian School and other places, um, the metaphor itself begins to become um, disaggregated from its use as classroom pedagogy. And then, you know, politicians, advertisers, um, writers really start to use it as a way to talk about any sort of reasoning from concrete hmm. to abstract. It is but really extraordinary how it's how it spreads so quickly. It's just looking yeah. at it, yeah. And part of that is because it's not just an object lesson, we might think of it today, this is what I just said, oh, it's an example of going from concrete to abstract. Uh -huh. But in the 19th century, it also very much implied that there was something really meaningful happening in that process of looking closely and going to an idea about that thing. Because part of what the object lesson did that was so powerful was it rooted abstract ideas in material things. Because uh -huh. once you've gone through this five-step lesson, once you've looked closely and thought about the larger context of this object and sorted your observations and you've written something about it, 
that thing that you've written is really deeply rooted in that object. But your text isn't just something that's loosely connected to that material thing, but instead through this almost spiral-like process starting with the object at the center, you are really creating something that um, is very closely connected to the material thing. It's as if it, it must be true because it's connected to that object. You are going through a reasoning process, right? And so the metaphor becomes a very powerful way to think about the world. So when an advertiser uses it and pulls out a bar of soap and says, you know, this is an object lesson in good soap, you're not just saying, oh, that's a great bar of soap. By thinking about the rhetoric behind it, you're actually going through a process of imagining this is something that has been proven and tested and understood through deep engagement with this thing. Mm -hmm. There's more to that metaphor um, than just a concrete example. How was it used in politics? Um, well, it was used in lots of different ways. I think my favorite example um, has to be um, as part of... Um, a presidential campaign, um, Grover Cleveland's uh, 1892 campaign, in which he actually created a pair of object lessons on um, tin cards. So it was an object lesson actually in tariffs, something that is um, <laughs> more relevant today than I thought it would be when I started working on this project. <laughs> but uh, the idea was that you would actually print, he printed, um, what he called a McKinley tariff object lesson, not on a piece of paper, but on a sheet of tin. And these two object lesson cards actually made out of tin were, um, became a lesson in trying to understand the problems of the McKinley tariff on lots of things, including tin. And so, for example, part of it was um, you were looking at a sheet that was listed as imported tin plate but you couldn't tell the difference between that imported tin plate and something that was not imported. Or um, voters, I guess, or students of this particular kind of political object lesson were instructed to really think about what does it mean for this to be American tin mm -hmm. versus imported tin? What are all the steps in that process? And of course, as you're doing this, you're holding a piece of that metal in your hand huh. and you're looking at it and you're studying it and it is embodying this political argument that he's making. And actually, throughout the various tariff debates of the early 1890s, there are lots of different object lessons on the different commodities that are being taxed. And it becomes a really interesting way to force or to encourage or to try to drive um, citizens to look closely at the things around them and to understand how and why do I interact with this thing? Where does it come from? Should it be taxed? Why or why not? Am I actually looking closely at the products around me? And this is something you know, I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from Milwaukee. That's where I'm from Boston, but I live in Milwaukee now. Hmm. And, um, you know, thinking about how the recent tariff debates have been framed in terms of, you know, a beer can. We make a lot of beer here. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what does it mean for that particular object? Right. Asking, um, asking citizens not just to think about, or voters not just to think about um, an abstract concept of tin, but to look at the thing itself. Mm -hmm. And that was very much um, part of political discourse in this period in terms of thinking about objects and, 
objects as as things that one should engage with directly and try to understand where that thing comes from and what does it allow for. And object lesson uh, rhetoric was very much used to do that. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, by explicitly talking about these materials as object lessons, by saying this is not just a piece of tin, but it's actually an object lesson in the McKinley tariff. And here's how you can try to think through this lesson. Or um, examples, if you look through um, you know, newspaper accounts of various tariff debates in the early 1890s, really seeing the phrase object lesson used repeatedly as a way to talk about the things that are being taxed. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, um, this. if we look closely at these textiles, we can see that this actually is an object lesson in um, what American manufacturers can produce or not. So there's a lot of language around close looking and around actually attending to the material things mm -hmm. as opposed to the ways they were abstracted during tariff debates and discussions by politicians. Hmm. So it's in many ways, well, it's exactly the opposite of the way most political conversations go uh, to greater levels of abstraction. Um, they went kind of the reverse. Well, I think when you're talking about very particular commodities or materials, um, I mean, that can often be an effective, mm -hmm. um, an effective strategy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And in these, in these cases, um, you know, that's what uh, many politicians we're doing, and then when you look at the list of objects to be um, to be taxed, the, um, the tariffs of this period, they actually look very similar to the kinds of lists of objects that you see in object lesson textbooks, hmm. that are actually often organized in similar ways. And so, imagining students really trained in this way of understanding objects in the material world, then potentially engaging with some of this political discourse, there's a, really a direct relationship, mm -hmm. even formally, to the ways that information is presented. Yeah. Um, which is quite interesting. As we're um, just about out of time, but I wanted, before we um, moved off, I want to touch on a couple things quickly, um, or not so quickly, but how did you get in interested in this? How did you come across all this? It's, it's like discovering a little, uh, a little subculture or culture that it, it opening a door of a room that you didn't know existed. Yeah, it's quite an exciting project um, for those reasons. As I said, the metaphor is really completely hidden this historic practice. Yeah. And even in talking with historians of education, you know, I've been told by some historians of education, which I'm, I'm not trained in history of education, my background's in American studies, but that, oh, you can't look at, um, you can't look at education transforming culture, you know, culture transforms education. Mm -hmm. But I think in history of object lessons, there's, um, there's a bit of both happening. Mm -hmm. Um. So I was um, in graduate school, and I was working on my um, trying to figure out what I wanted to write my dissertation about. And I've always worked on material culture, on histories of object-based learning. That's something I studied, you know, as an undergrad, and then I got a master's in, and I've worked in museums pretty much my whole life as a teenager. And I was looking through um, Harvard's many and wonderful library catalogs, and I kept coming across these texts that had titles like. Um, with the object lesson in the title, um, object study in the title. And it was quite fascinating to me to really sort of drill down and to figure out what are these texts? What are these books no one's talking about in material culture studies? And that brought me over to um, the Gutman Education Library at Harvard where all of these historic textbooks were kept. And I found myself diving into these historic textbooks 
And that then led me down this whole path when I realized, wait a minute, this phrase object lesson that a lot of contemporary material culture scholars like to use to talk about how they study the world has a prehistory. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole world of 19th century Americans interested in how we can study and think about the material world. And that was quite fascinating to me because um, I'm a person who's studied the 19th century, the long 19th century for a long time. And from a material culture perspective, it's a very object-focused century because um, in terms of the way people talk about material things, the rise of the department store, Mm -hmm. the rise of the modern museum, um, the way images could be published and shared so much more readily, um, you know, the realist literature, all of these different ways of really engaging with material things, which we think of as this, um, you know, 19th century abundance of objects that, um, you know, historians, historian Stephen Kahn is referred to you know, as object-based epistemology of the 19th century. Hmm. And then suddenly realizing for me, wait a minute, there's actually a history to how people learn to think this way. This is, that's interesting. And actually, uh, we, yeah. um, this year is it's really, uh, Listeners might think that this is some kind of deep plan that I have, but um, it's not. Uh, books show up in catalogs and they sound interesting to me and I, I talk to people. But this is it's, it's really quite extraordinary how you relate to two conversations. Um, I had a December um, episode 91, Wanamaker's Temple with uh, Nicole mm. Kirk about basically the material culture of John Wanamaker's department store and the way that it was related okay. to his Christianity. And his ideas mm-hmm. of evangelical, the evangelical social gospel. It's very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but also, too, in episode 89, when we talked about uh, shoes, uh, Georgian era shoes with Kimberly Alexander. And mm-hmm. Kimberly and I, uh, we concluded by talking about how uh, historians and teachers who are not um, historians of material culture might introduce material culture into the classroom. And uh, I've tried to do a little bit. I find it. Um, much more interesting and useful to give um, students, say, a an 18th century newspaper uh, printed in the printing shop at Colonial Williamsburg um, in the mm-hmm. in, in good linen paper and typeset, than just giving them the text. It uh, right. it, it's a, it changes the way they think about um, what they're reading and about the past. Mm-hmm. H- how would you go about that? What would be your advice to someone who wants to do that but doesn't have your background? Well. I think in almost any university uh, setting, there are going to be some kind of collection of objects mm-hmm. that you could engage with. And um, in a lot of other work that I've done, like, for example, um, Tangible Things, which is a book that um, I've written with several colleagues, including Laurel Ulrich, Ivan Gaskell, and Sarah Schechner, um, we thought really hard about, you know, how do you work with university museum collections? So first, I would encourage any professor who wants to do that to think about what are the local collections that I have here? that I could engage with. Mm-hmm. But you can also just think about what are some of the things that potentially, in your mind, as maybe a subject expert, but not a material culture expert, what are things that feel like they might connect to big questions or topics or possibilities? And then thinking about how you might go through a, a regimented approach to those objects to develop some of those bigger ideas. Um, mm-hmm. We have a series of videos that we created at Chipstone um, sort of modeling how you could teach with the object lesson method in the classroom. So that's one thing um, that sort of, it's one way that we've done that by starting with some objects in our collection mm-hmm. and modeling ways you can move from that object 
by going through the steps of an object lesson, writing about that object. And, and I often find that a very helpful way to do it. Uh, for faculty members, though, who want to teach with objects, I think the most important thing for them to think about is that they are not necessarily going to be an expert in that thing. And that can be hard for faculty members to grapple with because they're used to typically being the expert in the room. And when you're engaging with a material thing, you are consciously sharing authority with your students. And that gets back to this notion of um, object study and object-based pedagogy as opening up one's mind, as being a way to teach critical thinking and reasoning. Um, when you are teaching with a material thing in the classroom, you are, by definition, sharing authority because everyone with you is looking at that thing and observing that thing and having an observation and a response and having and developing their own questions. And I think developing comfort with um, looking closely, opening up questions about an object that you may not be able to answer, but recognizing that working collaboratively with your students, you can develop a whole range of interesting and meaningful questions, um, just as you would with any other historical source. I think can be a really exciting way to, um, you know, train students to be deeper thinkers in the history classroom. My guest today has been Sarah Ann Carter. She is the author of Object Lessons, How 19th Century Americans Learned to Make Sense of the Material World, and she is curator and director of research at the Chipstone Foundation in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.